Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of Curiosityness. Wow, 30 episodes. I am the host, Travis DeRose, and we're back from the winter break. I took a little break and didn't release some episodes because I wanted a vacation. But this episode is fun. I have on Richard Rattay, who is the author of Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip. And his book and this interview are just super, super fun and interesting because we just kind of reminisce and talk about, you know, the uh, golden age of the road trip and everything like that and, and talk about roadside attractions and all this fun stuff. And then he has a lot, uh, a lot of really deep uh, knowledge of the history of why road trips are the way they are, including like the roads and how, why they started being built and station wagons and why they have wood paneling and why motels are called motels and the deregulation of the airline industry, all this fun, interesting stuff we learned about in this conversation with Rich. So uh, without any further ado, here is the episode. How's it going, Rich? I am doing well, Travis. How are you? I am doing good. Thank you. Thanks for being on. This is, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk to you. You're, you're fun. You Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for reaching out. Yeah, of course. Um, and I mean, I found you through your, your book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip. And I mean, it's just like, I read it, I got through the whole thing, um, in just the past, took me like four days to get through the whole thing because it's just fun. Like it, it's just so such you a just fun plowed read. on through it, just like just like my dad driving us on vacation, <laughs> just plowed on through. Exactly. Yeah, I made good time. You know. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I mean this. It's just fun because I guess how do let's start with like what. Yeah. And you know what, Travis, I'm going to be really interested to hear your perspective because, you know, I, I don't know how old you are. You seem like a pretty young guy, though. And everything I, I talk about in the book probably predates you by a, a pretty good margin. So uh, I imagine, uh, you know, we'll be talking a little bit about how time, how much times have changed and the experience of going on a, a road trip uh, has changed dramatically over the years and decades, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I'm 25, by the way, just turned 25. So yeah, a lot of the stuff that you talk about in your book because you kind of go over like the history of a road trip and how it evolved to what it was in more like the 70s and stuff where a lot of that stuff I didn't even know like I just took it for granted with you know like the infrastructure of all the roads and highways being there like that was just yeah. that's always been there in my lifetime I never thought about that being right. built you know well, even when my brothers and sisters and I uh, you know were, were traveling the highways of the 1970s with our parents so it seemed that way to us as well. It just seemed like, you know, America's interstate highways had always kind of uh, been around and we kind of took them for granted when in reality, uh, the interstate highways were still very much in the process of being built, even in the 1970s. Yeah, it's crazy. Because like, I don't know, it just seemed we just very much take it for granted today and, and that it's going to be maintained. And, um, and the fact that there, there's just stuff surrounding them. There's, you know, a bunch of gas stations and hotels and there's towns and everything like that. But that wasn't yeah. always the case, you know? No, and, and very little of that existed during the first, you know, 10, even 15 years that the, the inter interstate highways were, were being uh, built, really. I mean, you know, we didn't have any of this uh, infrastructure, any of these fast food restaurants, uh, largely throughout the 1960s. Um, the rest areas were, were there. 
They were built as part of the original plan of the interstate highways. Um, but it was a tremendously different uh, environment to be traveling in back then. Uh, when you set off on a family vacation, on a family road trip, it felt a lot more like uh, kind of venturing off into the wild frontier because there just weren't the same number of exits with service stations uh, that would be able to lend you assistance. Um, you kind of had to plan where you were going to stop for gasoline in advance because, again, you couldn't rely on, on uh, exits at regular intervals where there would be gas stations that you could fill up in some of the more remote areas of the country. So it was a much, much different travel environment than what we have today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, now it's like, we'll take off on a road trip, you know, just me and my girlfriend on our by ourselves, and we won't plan any of that out. You know, we'll just hit the road with an iPhone and we'll figure it out. Right. Yeah. And yeah, you can do that. You have all these electronics, of course, that, that we didn't have today. We didn't have any of the navigation systems. It was pretty much uh, just you and a road atlas, or as I go into the book, into the book, uh, kind of the AAA triptychs, which were kind of flip books that, you know, you followed and kind of gave you a preview of what to expect for the next uh, 50 miles or so of your trip. Um, but and also if you had breakdowns along the way, you know, help wasn't just a cell phone call away. We didn't have cell phones back then. Uh, so you were pretty much on your own to either fix your car or to hitchhike to an exit where you could get help. Um, again, very, very different than today. Yeah, totally. Stuff we don't even have to deal with. Um, okay, so let's start with like how, why did this, or let's talk about, because you talk about this a lot in your book, but for people listening, like what is your experience with road trips, you know, growing up with your dad, your your whole family, and like what kind of, you know, uh, enticed you or, or made you write this book, I guess? Okay. Well, that's a lot to cover. <laughs> so yes, uh, I grew up as the fourth of four children. I just turned 50, uh, a few weeks ago. So I was born in 1968 and I think, uh, my parents were kind of waiting for me to come along before they really started their road trip adventures. So, um, once, uh, once I was, you know, two or three years old and, and, uh, you know, kind of out of my babyhood, I guess they were ready to get going. Uh, so we would go on road trips at least twice a year. Uh, the driving factor of our uh, road trips was uh, that my dad was an incredibly avid golfer. And um, that's a tough thing to be when you live in Wisconsin, as we did. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're in an environment where you basically can't play golf uh, six or seven months out of the year because, um, you know, you're chasing a little white ball around in a, uh, you know, all over a, a landscape that's uh, covered in snow. So that doesn't make <laughs> finding that little white ball easy to find. So, right. um, we would travel predominantly during our Christmas breaks and during our Easter or spring breaks. Uh, unlike other families, you know, who traveled during the summer, uh, mostly we would travel due South from Wisconsin, um, because the point of our trips was to get my dad to a, a warm and sunny golf course as fast as humanly possible. Uh, so most <laughs> of our destinations would be along the, the Gulf coast, uh, either in Mississippi or Louisiana. We started getting down, uh, into Florida, uh, in some of the later years. And of course we had to take the obligatory trip to, to Disney world, which, uh, opened in 19. 71, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, um, you know, it, it, it just set the, the stage for, for many uh, great adventures, which uh, I recall in the book. And, um, 
you know, not surprisingly, what uh, what inspired me to write the book was, I, I know this will shock you, but I came up with the idea to write a book about family vacations while actually on a, a family vacation with my own kids and wife. Um, I was uh, sitting on a beach, and this was one of the few times that we actually didn't take uh, a road trip because uh, we still are very much avid road trippers, um, you know, my, my, my wife and, and kids today. Um, but I was, uh, I was sitting on a beach, and I looked over at my own kids who were six and eight years old at the time and got back to thinking what my life was like uh, growing up traveling the highways of the 1970s with my parents and with my siblings. And I suddenly realized how profound those road trips that we would take together, um, how, how profound experiences those really were. I, I mean, they gave me many of my favorite childhood memories. Um, they broadened my horizons in so many different ways, just getting out and seeing different areas of the country, trying different foods, hearing the different ways that people talked, especially, you know, traveling to the deep South, like we did so often, uh, that was a much different experience and environment than what we had in Wisconsin where I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, but really what those, those road trips did is they strengthened my relationships with my parents and with my, my siblings in so many ways, you know, spending all those long hours together, traveling together. I think they really set us up to have great relationships for a lifetime. And even today, even though my brothers and sister were all very, very different people in very different careers, um, we have, we have a very close bond and, and I credit it to those long hours that we spent together in the cars, uh, traveling while growing up. But at the same time that I realized how profound those experiences and how much of an impact uh, those travel experiences had on my life, I also realized how little I really knew about how they came to be. I mean, I really uh, didn't know how America got its roads and its interstate highways. Uh, I didn't understand why American families at that time weren't flying everywhere, of course, like like we do so often today. Um, I didn't know how we got things like drive through windows or fuzz busters or eight track tape decks or any of those great devices that, you know, kind of played into the road trip experience at that time. Uh, I didn't know how, why our, our station wagon had fake wood paneling on the side. So, you know, I, I was kind of intrigued to learn the answers to all these questions. So when I got back from that family trip, I hit the library uh, and I really didn't come out for a year. I read book after book and article after article and did more research online um, and, you know, followed one rabbit down a hole after another. And uh, I knew um, that after I'd gathered up all the, all these stories and all this research, uh, I knew I had to set it down into a book and, and just kind of talk about, uh, you know, how the great American road trip experience came to be and how it's so different than what we have today. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I love that you go over the, all the, uh, the history of that stuff. Cause it's, you know, it's something I just never really thought of. And, you know, even reading, reading your book, um, I feel like I had a kind of a similar, experience um to you when I was growing up with my family where we would do a lot of road trips and a lot of traveling where we we did more you know plane trips and stuff too but we also did a lot of road trips um right. you know not in our not in a station wagon or anything but we had our minivan sometimes and but we were more of a uh RV motorhome family so my we got we had one of those ever since I was the day I was born we always had a motorhome and, you know, that was our right. thing. So that was, it was a little more luxurious, I'd say, maybe than, than your trips where we could just lounge on the, uh, 
on the couch and stuff while dad would drive us down the the highway. It was no, sure, you yeah. know. And, I, and how many brothers and sisters do you have, Travis? I just have one older sister. Okay, so pretty small family unit then. Okay. Yeah, so we had a, we had a lot of space in there. It was pretty good. Um, but yeah, it was just some of the best memories are in there and and do, in those road trips, you know, and still. Yeah. Even today, you know, I'm 25, my sister's 32, we'll still do, um, we'll do some, not as long, not like two or three week trips anymore, but we'll do like a week long trip in the motorhome, just the four of us and, and hanging out. It's, it's still the same. And, uh, yeah, I feel like it's just because we've done that forever. You know, it's, it's really great to be able to go on a vacation with, you know, my family and we can all kind of settle into our routine after a couple of days, we can get out of like working in the office and everything and, and just kind of relax and we'll bicker the first few days, but then we'll all settle in and and it'll be great. It's, it's really good family time. You know, you had a much different uh, point of origin, obviously, than I did coming from the Midwest and, and basically spending my entire life in Wisconsin. Um, I take it you grew up in California, right? I did. Yes. Yep. So where would you generally travel to then on your family road trips, Travis? Uh, Generally, we would do, I feel like I've covered the whole West Coast uh, of the U.S. Like I've I've done that trip a whole bunch of times, driving up the 5, up the 101 to San Francisco, up to Oregon. Um, So that's that was probably our main trip. But then we've also more done the farthest east we've gone is to Texas, really. We haven't gone much farther than that because that's just a that's a pretty okay. long drive, yeah. Well, and um, we were very so leisure. yeah, it's kind of the opposite of the experience that I had because you know again we always traveled due south. We rarely traveled west of the Mississippi River, and it sounds like all your travels were you know definitely west of the Mississippi and along the west coast. Yeah, yeah, very true. That's a good point. We were like opposites in that point. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was great. And, and I just loved, uh, hearing all that, all hearing your perspective from, you know, back in the seventies and how it, it was similar to mine where, but my dad never, I feel like we were different in the fact that we wouldn't, it was about the journey for us where for you and your dad, it was about the, more the destination of getting to the spot to go golfing. Right. Yeah, but ultimately, and you know, I, I think I go into this in the in the book as well. I mean, all of our memories, most of my uh, favorite memories of all those vacations that we took, it was all about the journey. The journey was its own reward. It was its own destination in a way. Um, you know, that's that that's really what I recall is those long hours that we spent traveling together, rather than so much the destinations that we eventually arrived at, which I which which is why I don't even go into the destinations that we really got to in the book. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we never. Well, I guess to talk about your, can you just kind of tell everybody listening about your dad's like obsession with making good time and how he just had to, you guys like. <laughs> It was, it was like an obsession yeah. to have the stopwatch, uh, to get off the off ramp and, and, you know, everyone had to go <laughs> take a whiz and, and get to your McDonald's and get back in the car in a few minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny in doing the research for the book too, obviously I talked to, to, uh, many, many people about their own family experiences and own travel experiences while, while they were growing up. Uh, and I really found that dads kind of fell into one of two camps and, 
I would say about 80% of dads were the, were the kind, just like my father, where it was all about what he called making good time and trying to get to the, uh, the day's destination, even if it wasn't the final destination, you know, if, if you were, you know, had set a, a destination of a certain hotel or a certain uh, city to get to, um, you know, it was all about getting to that destination for the day as fast as humanly possible for no other reason really than just to prove that it could be done. You know, we could get to this, <laughs> this city or this hotel by 7 PM before dark fell, you know, and then 20 per the other 20% of dads were all about, uh, stopping at just about every historic landmark and every roadside attraction along the way, you know, however insignificant or, or, um, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a novel place, uh, along the way. But yeah, my dad was all about, um, making good time. And, uh, so that set the stage for a number of, of memorable, uh, experiences. Um, first of all, he would try to avoid, uh, stopping off to have us eat as much as possible. So one of his strategies, uh, is that, you know, he'd kind of turn up the temperature in the car and turn down the radio as lunchtime kind of approach so that, um, you know, all the kids would kind of be drifting off to sleep and, and, and maybe, you know, maybe we'd fall asleep for a while and then we wouldn't wake up until, you know, one thirty, two o'clock and, and, you know, we'd all have our stomachs rumbling and say, Oh mom, dad, aren't we you know going to be stopping to eat anytime soon? And dad'd be like, Oh, you know, hey, hey, look at that. We seem to have missed uh, our lunch hour now. And why don't we just try to hold out until dinner? <laughs> So that was one of his kind of, um, you know, devious little little ways of, of saving some time. And then, of course, his big thing was that he would try to stretch every tank full of gasoline to the absolute limit. So we would have to pull over and fill up as few times as possible. And this led to uh, uh, no uh, limit of, of um, uh, arguments, I guess, between my mom and my dad. Uh, because my mom was the, the very prudent type. She wanted us to fill up whenever the needle of the gas tank uh, got below a, a quarter tank. And my dad, he insisted in his heart of hearts that even when the needle of the gas gauge fell upon E, that that uh, automobile engineers still built in a reserve amount of fuel uh, of 40 miles worth of fuel, um, even when the, the, uh, the needle hit E. And so um, he would stretch every tank of gasoline and and uh, my mom and dad would get into all manner of arguments over this. And uh, there were so many occasions while we were out on the highways where we are just, you know, it was kind of like we were at a tennis match and all of our heads are going back and forth between the the, the uh, needle that's dropping below E on the gas gauge and looking, you know, to the horizon for some sign that there's a gas station, you know, coming up or some sort of <laughs> civilization ahead because we knew it was going to be close. He would always cut it close. Um, so, you know, we'd be sweat, sweating out these last few miles while we're hoping to, to, uh, coast on the last few fumes in the gas tank to get to this gas station and nearly always we made it, you know, and I'm convinced <laughs> on several occasions we were indeed coasting on fumes into that, into that gas station so we could pull up to the pump and refill. Um, but ultimately all of that ended on a, on a lonely, dark, rainy night in Arkansas in, I believe, 
believe 1976 when we finally did run out of gasoline and um, you know, it, my dad, you know, of course you lost power steering and he kind of had to guide the car over to the side of the road without power steering and, and all the lights went off and, um, and he had to, uh, actually hitchhike, pulled up his collar, started walking, put out his thumb. I, I think he did eventually get picked up about a half mile down the road. And, and, you know, about an hour later, he shows up back at the car with two cans of gasoline. He's, uh, he convinced a, a tow truck driver at, at a service station he found to give him a, a lift back. And he had two full, uh, gasoline cans full of gas to, to get us going again. And forever after that, there was never any argument. And we always refueled, um, you know, when my mom wanted, right when the needle, uh, uh, got on a quarter tank, but <laughs> wow! So that was it. That it just happened once, and then he he kind of learned his lesson, huh? Well, you know, he had no ammunition to fight back with <laughs> against my mom <laughs> after that because she could always bring up the time in Arkansas that we ran out of gasoline, and she, of course, never wanted it to happen again. <laughs> so now that you've you know been through that and experienced both sides of it, so where where do you land on that today? Are you down to below the E line? Or are you like are you safe with it? No, I think I learned from my dad's uh, experiences and approach to the matter. And, and you know, I talked about the two different types of dads: the the the, the majority group always uh, being the ones that wanted to make good time. I fall into the minority. I love to stop at all the interesting little roadside attractions uh, that you encounter along the way on a family road trip. And um, I just think oftentimes that's those are what make a, a road trip most memorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. I totally agree with that. And what we we sort of split this a bit where we're like what we'll tend to do on our trips is we'll pick, you know, kind of an end destination um, for, you know, for our motorhome trip of where we want to get to. Like we want to get to White Sands, New Mexico or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we'll just kind of on the way there, we'll just kind of uh, take the highways and just kind of do it in a two day trip. Just breeze through as fast as we can and just take notes of like things that will that we see along the road that might be cool to, to check out on the way back and um, things like that. And then just get there real quick and then slowly kind of work our way back, back home where then we'll, oh, that's we'll nice. take, yeah, that's an interesting approach to it. So yeah. you kind of do it, did a little bit of advanced scouting on the way out and then you could kind of plan your stops for the, for the journey back. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, very true. And then yeah. now with, with Yelp and everything too, we'll, we'll kind of look up what these, what the things are that we, the billboards are that we see of, of different things and, uh, scope them out to see if they're worth the stop or, or stuff like that too. But, um, yeah, no, that's so. a great strategy. Uh, I know on a recent trip that, uh, I took my kids and, and, uh, wife out to, uh, our first, uh, time heading out to Mount Rushmore doing, you know, the, the quintessential American road trip from the oh, Midwest yeah. out to, out to Mount Rushmore and, and, you know, Mount Rushmore, it was great as a final destination. It lived up to our expectations and everything. Um, but it was really the stops along the way that made that trip probably my favorite road trip that I've ever taken. So, uh, that was a a rare trip where we rented an RV instead of taking our own family car. Um, and I had to pick up the RV in Illinois to the South of us here. 
And then we traveled due west from there, and we stopped off at the Field of Dreams, where they filmed the movie, the famous Kevin Costner movie. Uh, and it's still maintained pretty much exactly as it appears uh, in the movie. And, and my son and I are big baseball fans, so that was a, a magical, magical experience to, to go and see the actual Field of Dreams as it's kind of cut out of cornfields you know, in Iowa and right next to that iconic house where the movie was uh, shot. Um, a little bit west of there, we stopped off in Clear Lake, Iowa, and the Surf Ballroom, which was the venue uh, that was the the scene that um, was the, the the last venue that Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and the Big Bopper played at before they uh, boarded an airplane at a at a nearby airfield and of course crashed and and you know we lost uh, all three of those great musicians on the day the music died. So we got to see that venue, uh, and that's still preserved pretty pretty much as as it was, um, you know, I, on the evening that, that Buddy Holly last played it. So that was, that was a pretty cool place. Uh, we stopped off at the Minuteman Missile Museum along I-70 in South Dakota, uh, which was fascinating. They still have, you know, the actual Minuteman missiles in their silos, uh, exactly as they would have been during the height of the Cold War. Uh, that was fascinating to see. See, we stopped at the Badlands and we stopped at Wall Drug, which is still today probably America's most popular roadside attraction. Um, you know, we did all these things on the on the way to Mount Rushmore, uh, and it was those stops that I think made that made that trip the memorable experience that it that it turned out to be. Mm-hmm, totally. What was that? Um, the last one you said, uh, Wall Drug or something? Wall Drug. Yeah, you might uh, have seen the. Bumper stickers on on many of the cars on the highways. You know, have you been to Wall Drug? And and uh, I stopped at Wall Drug. Um, you know, it, it started as just a, a a pharmacy out in the middle of nowhere, essentially in Wall, South Dakota. And their big promotion that they became famous for, I believe they they started advertising it as early as the 1930s, was free ice water. Because you're traveling on this highway through South Dakota, and there's literally no place else to stop for miles and miles around uh, in all directions. Um, But they became famous by putting up billboard after billboard with this promotion of free ice water. And so for anyone heading west, particularly out of the Midwest, um, this became a very popular place to stop at. And if you stop there today, it's grown essentially into this huge, uh, almost a mega mall complex where they have, I don't know, 10 different restaurants and ice cream stands and there's art stores there and there's all sorts of manners of, of knickknacks. And they have, um, over the years, they've acquired all these oversized, uh, sculptures, I guess, that were once, um, you know, known as people attractors, like from the old Route 66. So they'll have, you know, these huge uh, dinosaurs that are, you know, from the 1950s and whatnot that are kind of partially mechanized. And, um, you know, just about anything you could ever dream of seeing, they pretty much have it at Wall Drug. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I believe, you know, the, the, the statistics are very informally kept on these things, but uh, I believe that Wall Drug is, is one of the most attended and visited uh, roadside attractions in, in all of America. Wow. Yeah, it's, that stuff is just so – it's so goofy and stuff, but it's so fun. I love that, just stopping at those places and, and finding those things along the side of the road. It, it's so exciting, and, and especially when places go all out with their billboards – and, you know, they'll mark it like 100 miles away, 
97 miles away, you know, they'll market right. the whole way. That's that's great. I love that. Right. And uh, of course, that's the the secret of the thing in, um, oh, uh, what's the name of it? Uh, not Grand Canyon, Arizona, but so, something like that. But uh, it's another one of those places where for miles uh, around in every highway leading into this this small city in Arizona, they're talking about, you know, have you seen the thing? Have you experienced the thing? And I, I believe there's more than 250 billboards scattered on the highways that people pass. And so, you know, it, it almost breaks you down over time. Like, OK, <laughs> all right. I know about the thing. Once we get there, you almost feel obligated to stop. Right. Yeah, totally. You know, of course the thing is basically just a, you know, it's, it's a glorified, uh, a gas station with this thing housed in a, a, a building in back. And I'm not going to give away the secret, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure it lives up to, to the hype that, <laughs> you know, that is used to promote it. Yes. Yeah. I've actually, yeah, I've been there a couple years ago. We got to kind of experience that where we had no idea that, you know, the thing even existed or what it was, but we just, Kept driving so you and seeing the billboards. There. Yes, I've been to that one. So that was exciting yes. when I read about that in your book. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was fun. Texas but yeah. Canyon, Arizona. That's the name of the small town. I couldn't think of it. Okay, Texas Canyon. Yeah, but that stuff is great. It's it's just so fun to see what people come up with and like how are they gonna, you know, live up to the hype they have built with all these billboards, you know? But right. yes, I like that. We won't we won't reveal it so people can still experience it because it is fun. I think it's worth the stop at least. Absolutely. If nothing else, just to take a couple of selfies of you and the thing, <laughs> you know, something to post on Facebook or on Twitter these days. Yes, totally. And then you also mentioned the uh, the mystery spot up in, I think that's Santa Cruz, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, the, the very first mystery spot. Yes, there's been several others that, uh, you know, it kind of became a chain there for a while. In fact, we even had one here in Wisconsin, Dells, Wisconsin. Um Yes, but the mystery spot was one of the first great roadside attractions that was uh, founded by a uh, a gentleman by the name of George Prather, who uh, I think created this legend about how he ventured out into a, a, an area of the country and his compass started going wild. And, you know, he found that there were all these gravitational anomalies going on. And so um, he purchased the land where this all occurred, and he built uh, a, a house uh, on the side of a, a, a hillside out there, and he charged people to take them uh, out to this house and experience all these um, weird, you know, kind of a phenomenon that took place in the house. Uh, and, and it would, you know, people would be able to, um, stand, you know, almost at a 45 degree angle without falling down and, and balls appeared to roll uphill instead of down, um, and it had all these, you know, crazy effects and it became world famous. It, uh, it was featured in life magazine. Uh, I believe one of the early TV shows in the 1950s, uh, also featured it. And people were starting to travel from all over, not only the country, but really uh, 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 international travelers were coming to come see the the incredible mystery spot, the place that defied gravity. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, various tests were done on it, and, and uh, uh, the more uh, it was 
actually studied by scientists and and who uh, whoever um you know of course all it was found to be was that this guy had essentially built a cockeyed house on the side of a a, a hillside and uh just the fact that there weren't any windows that you couldn't uh, you know have any horizon to judge against um, and that the, the, the whole house was built at an angle, uh, that's really what caused all these kind of optical effects. There was no, uh, you know, gravitational anomaly or, or anything like that that took place out there, but it's still in business to this day. It still, uh, provides a lot of fun experiences, especially for kids. Uh, and yeah, still going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that has been, I've driven by there so many times, but I've never gotten to stop. It's been like, like my white whale where we'll drive by and, and my parents, I'll, you know, I'll beg my parents to stop and they'll say, you know, we got to get going. We'll, we'll stop on the way back. And then that happens almost every time. And on the way back, it's, it's closed or, you know, it's, it's just about to close or whatever. I've right. never gotten to stop, but I've seen the signs so many times. Well, that's one you got to build into a future itinerary then, right, Travis? Yeah, I'm going to get there for sure. And that's interesting that people, it became so big. It was a roadside attraction, but it became so big and popular that it became the destination a little bit, huh? Yeah, I, I'm sure, uh, you know, people who at least lived within a, you know, a few hours drive, a driving distance made a point of, of going to the mystery spot, but mm -hmm. yep. Just one of many interesting, quirky, you know, places that you can only discover when you're out traveling America's highways instead of, you know, flying over it in an airplane. Yes, very, very true. Yeah, I feel um, I'm always worried when I'm on a road trip, like I have a little bit of anxiety that I'm going to miss something good like that, where, you know, maybe they don't have a bunch of billboards up or, or maybe it's just something smaller that, I, you know, is not super advertised. Um, have you run That's across... Why it's always yeah, go, go ahead. it's always good to do a little bit of a, a advanced research then, you know, about uh, some of the interesting uh, places that you can find along the route that you plan to travel. I find that's um, uh, a, a good strategy even today. Yes, totally. So have you found any like, um, I know Yelp's good. I use Yelp a lot for finding that kind of stuff. But have you found any specifically good resources in your travels or your, you know, studying about this that you've that have a lot of roadside attractions or anything like that? Well, I got to tell you, Travis, I'm kind of a history channel and travel channel junkie. Uh, so a lot of these places that uh, I discovered are on, you know, some of these great uh, shows that, you know, like the, the, the destination truth shows with Josh Gates and the, the mysteries at the museum with Don Wildman and um, some of the other shows that you can see on, on the travel channel. So I, I'm just kind of able to draw on a good knowledge base that I've built up over the years by being kind of a junkie uh, of watching these shows. And they kind of stick in my mind like, you know, oh, yeah, if I'm ever in, um, you know, in Minnesota, I should stop off and see that Runestone Museum, um, which actually happened to, to us while we were out on a trip uh, uh, just a few years ago. And that Runestone Museum um, it's a, a fascinating story. It's a, a, a rune stone that was um, dug up in Minnesota. Uh, it was uh, a, a wind blew over a, a tree and this, the, this large stone with um, ancient markings on it was trapped in the roots of this tree and they cleaned it up. Uh, and what it appeared to be was a, a land claim that was set forth by Viking explorers 
um, who had gone that far into America's interior, uh, I believe as early as the, the 14, early 1400s or, or late 1300s, something like that. Um, but it basically proved that um, there were uh, Western people here earlier than Columbus. Um, and so they keep this, uh, this special stone uh, housed at this museum, uh, along with some other uh, interesting artifacts that appear to prove that, um, that Vikings had explored the interior of the country. And it was just something that I became aware of. And I saw um, the sign of, for Alexandria, Minnesota, while we were um, cruising past on the highway. And it just, uh, you know, stuck out in my mind that, oh, yeah, that's where that, that one museum is, I, I think. And then, you know, we got on the TripAdvisor or, or uh, Yelp or whatever and found, oh, yeah, that indeed, it's, uh, you know, it's just right down the road. And so we were able to, to stop off and, and visit that museum. And it made for a memorable stop. My kids loved it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Like learning about that stuff is so great. And I don't know if you've heard, um, if you're familiar with Heel Hauser in, in California's gold, but that's kind of a more of a local California KCET show. But yeah, he does similar stuff to that where he'll, he'll focus on, he only does California stuff and he'll find just the weirdest things. Like he did a full, you know, half hour episode on a road called ZZYZX or something and why it was named that and stuff. And he'll just spend, he'll just go into such detail and he's so excited about everything. So, uh, he's, he's passed away now, but if anyone hasn't seen California's gold and they live in California, I highly, highly recommend it. Cause that's one of the best shows with Heel Hauser to find little like fun roadside attractions and stuff like that. I, I just super love that. So, yeah, no, that sounds great. It is very, very good stuff. So yeah, um, but I think you can just like pick out cities that, you know, are along the route, even some smaller towns and, and just do a quick Internet search of them. See if there's any uh, points of interest. Um, it really doesn't take long. And uh, I think it really adds to the experience of the trip and, and actually adds to the anticipation of going on that trip when you can find some of these quirky little places, uh, you know, along the way. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. And it seems like now almost every every little town has something like some little weird statue or just something to, to stop yeah. off and check out real quick, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it uh, reminds me of a little place called Enterprise, Alabama, where they actually have a statue of a giant bull weevil, which has become <laughs> something of a quirky roadside attraction. If you can imagine, it's the world's only statue. Not only is it the largest, uh, world's largest statue of a bull weevil, but probably the only statue of a bull weevil. Um, and it actually uh, uh, is a, a, a memorial marker of an event that happened, I believe, in the 1930s or 40s where uh, uh, I believe uh, everyone in the area at that time was planting cotton and boll weevils came and attacked the crop. Um, and what the people, and it ba basically just decimated all the cotton crops in the area. Uh, and the lesson that the people learned uh, is <clears throat> in that area was that don't, don't just uh, plant cotton, basically. They learned the lesson of crop diversification um, because these boll weevils only specifically attack corn or, or cotton or whatever the, the crop was that that was destroyed. And so they actually created the statue to commemorate that great uh, uh, plague that took out all the crops in the area and taught them the importance of crop diversification. Pretty nice. funny. Yes, that's good. And it sounds like just because you know all that, you you didn't just say there's a bull weevil statue, you know why it's there and stuff. You sound you seem to me like the type of person who would 
um, when you visit these things or a museum or something, you're very into reading the the little plaques or history things about why something is there. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And I, I make sure my kids learn it as well, too, whether they're <laughs> they're always excited to learn it or not. <laughs> they they learn the reason that we stopped. Yes. Yeah. I'm the same way. Where I I like if I go to a museum, I have to read everything pretty much. I'm yes. very, very slow at museums. So um, my family has learned to to kind of, well, we'll go to a museum and they'll finish up and they'll go do something else. And then and then I'll give them a call when I'm done so we can, they can just swing by and pick me up because I just they just go crazy with that where they're more of just, oh, there's a bull weevil statue. That's cool. Take a picture and, and head out. But I have to know why it's there and everything about it. Well, you and I sound like we're cut very much from the same cloth, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff. It's so fun. Um, so you, you mentioned Mount Rushmore, which is more of a destination, I'd say, rather than a roadside attraction, but still very sure. cool. Yeah. I have never made it there. Uh, I've heard that people, I've heard both sides where people think it's, you know, it's great and it's worth a visit, or some people say it's pretty underwhelming. It's not as big as you think it is. Uh, but you sounded, you said it was, uh, you enjoyed it. Was it worth a stop at least? Yes. And as I'd heard in advance and experienced when I was there in person, I think what made it, what really brought it home was, I believe every Sunday night, um, they do a special nighttime, uh, showing of the, you know, they kind of explain the history of it, uh, and whatnot. Um, but the highlight of the evening is when they ask all the veterans in the off in, in the audience to stand up and be recognized and they bring them down on stage and you see all these veterans that have served in, you know, everything from World War II to Vietnam, Korea, um, every, you know, conflict right down the line. And you it, it's just such an incredibly patriotic event. And you realize that, you know, the importance uh, 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 of the monument behind them and, and what the monument and what America uh, means to these folks. It's an incredibly uh, emotional and touching experience. And I think mm, that's really what <clears throat> made Mount Mount Rushmore memorable for me. Cool. Good to know. Yeah, I was curious about that. So I want to hear your thoughts. So thank you. Um, so, okay. What I'm curious about now is how, um, how old are your kids? Are you still taking road trips with them pretty regularly? We are still taking road trips. They are now 14 and 12 years old. Oh, sweet. Right on. That's a good, that's a good road trip age. Yep. You bet. So what are your, what are your trips look like now? What kind of you know, what kind of vehicle do you guys have? You know, what kind of, what, what is your road trip experience compared to that you're providing for your kids compared to what your dad provided for you? Do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> obviously the experience has changed dramatically. Um, uh, interestingly, right now I have a Ford F-150 that is our primary um, road trip vehicle. That's a pickup truck with, with a crew cab, uh, mm -hmm. actually very spacious inside. My kids love it. They have all sorts of room in the backseat uh, that they can that they can move around in. Um, unlike my family, when I was growing up, uh, I mentioned that, you know, we mostly did all of our travels east of the Mississippi. So uh, I've been kind of making up for that. And in, at least in recent years, I've been taking, uh, my family west of the Mississippi, uh, quite often. And, you know, especially on our longer trips, we've been out to Yellowstone and, and Yosemite and to Mount Rushmore. So we've made that trip several times. And even though these days, I, I think we're prone to take um, 
shorter vacations than what I did with my family when I was growing up. Our vacations when I was growing up were were mostly uh, at least eight days, usually 10, sometimes 12 days. We would stretch it out to uh, these days, you know, my wife and I both uh, work and, and have jobs and whatnot. And so um, we're pr- more uh, inclined to take shorter vacations. So we might just get away for a long weekend and go down to St. Louis, which has become one of our favorite um, travel destinations. There's a couple of great museums down there and a great zoo there as well. Uh, recently, in recent years, we've discovered the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit, uh, which is about a six and a half, seven hour drive away from where we are here in Wisconsin. Uh, so we've been there a couple of times. And, you know, that talk about, uh, you know, a museum where you could just spend days in there discovering, uh, new things. Travis, you would, you would love it. Uh, basically the Henry Ford museum is, uh, the Smithsonian, uh, in the Midwest that nobody talks about. And it's every bit as big and probably even, uh, better curated than any of the Smithsonian's out in Washington, DC. So, um, put that, add that to your list of, of great travel destinations. Yeah, for sure. But of course, you know, uh, I think as we talked about a little bit earlier, what has made the travel experience so different these days is the prevalence of, of personal electronic devices, right? Um, because, you know, it's so easy for us. Uh, and especially the kids to, you know, retreat into their own little iPad movie that's playing or listen to their own music with their headphones on or for the wife uh, to to slip on a pair of headphones and maybe listen to an audio book while I'm listening to, um, you know, uh, uh, music on the radio and whatnot. And so even though we are all um, traveling together, we're each kind of off in our own little wor- worlds. And so we've kind of had to fight against that temptation because I think what makes the family road trip so special and why so many of us have great uh, memories of the the trips that we took with our families while growing up um, was that they were great shared experiences. And we would play all those great travel games together. Uh, One of my favorites with my family was we'd all um, play Mad Libs together, which are, you know, kind of stories with blanks left in them. And then um, whoever was, uh, you know, keep was kind of the. I don't know, kept, kept the book of the Mad Lib. They would ask for suggestions of, you know, an adjective or a noun. And so, uh, these, these suggestions would then be filled blindly into the blanks of the story. And then, uh, once you had all the blanks filled, then you would go back and read back the story with all these out of context suggestions put into place. And it would just be, you know, hilarious. And, and everybody would laugh because they all, you know, contributed some nonsensical suggestions. So we had a great time with that growing up. Uh, and then of course, stopping off at, at some of these great roadside attractions, um, you know, and just maybe overcoming some obstacles, uh, along the way, if you had a mechanical breakdown, like I had an older brother that was fantastic at fixing cars. And so he would always wind up jerry rigging some solution to whatever, you know, mechanical failure happened to us, uh, along the way, but it was in sharing all these experiences, all these games, overcoming all these obstacles together. That's really what made those family road trip experiences so memorable. And so today when we have all these electronic devices, um, you know, we have to, we have to kind of make a, a point of setting them to the side, 
um, and and uh, making time to spend that quality time together and not just getting wrapped up in our own little uh, media and own little worlds. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's kind of nice where you if you can make the effort to turn off the electronics and stuff like that and still do, you know, Mad Libs or the license plate game or all that kind of stuff together. Um, but then you can also have your time, you know, reading your, listening to your audiobook or whatever, where you're kind of alone. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have that everyone, you know, keeps their sanity a little bit where you can right. kind of have the balance of both of those today, you know? And that's the key word. It's balance, right? You know, I, I don't want to be the, the stodgy old guy saying, you know, we can't have our electronics and put those things away. Um, it's just everything in moderation, right? There's a, you know, we all need our own little personal time and our personal space, especially when we're all cooped up together on these long road trips. Um, but it's also really, really important to take that, uh, to make a point of, of sharing that quality time together. And, you know, we have certain songs that we sing together as a family and, you know, it's all, it's all very cheesy, but you know, like there's a, a, a Macklemore song downtown, you know, and it has all these crazy parts of these female backs, uh, backup singers and whatnot. And of course I always take the, you know, the backup singer <laughs> lyrics and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my wife is an exceptional rapper and she's like spitting out, you know, all the Macklemore lyrics and the kids are having a great time with it too. And it, you know, it, it all sounds cheesy until you're part of it. And it just makes for, you know, a, a great time to be cruising down the road and we're all singing songs together as a family. And it, again, it's, I think it's, uh, one of those things that we'll look back years from now and, uh, just recall, you know, as an incredibly fond experience. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. Where you'll, you know, we'll watch uh, family vacation with Chevy chase and, you know, it's like, that him and his wife are singing in the front seat and it's just like so cheesy and it seems horrible. But when you're actually kind of experiencing it and, and on the road trip and, and doing all that stuff, it's pretty fun, you know, and it, it's fun to be a part of it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you will never uh, be able to do when you get on an airplane, right? <laughs> that would be weird to sing songs. <laughs> or if you airplane. did, yeah, <laughs> I guess you could do it, but people would definitely give you the side eye. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very true. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, we have, uh, gosh, we've had this for probably uh, six years or seven years now, but I feel like now my dad like bought the ultimate road trip car. It's a a Ford flex. And that thing is just, Oh man, it's great. It's kind of like not really an SUV. It's, it's really big. Um, but it's not like elevated like an SUV. It's kind of lower to the ground. Um, almost station wagony, but, but bigger. Um, they even have that retro look. Many of them, you know, do, uh, where they have kind of that, that sixties look with all the aluminum siding on the outside and they're all chromed up. Um, but yeah, I, I, I took a, a hard look at Ford flexes before I brought my, bought my present vehicle. Uh, the thing that tipped the scales to me towards the, the pickup truck is I also have two large, uh, dogs. Uh, and so with the pickup truck, I'm able to put two kennels back there. Uh, and that keeps all the, the hair and the, the, the smell of course of the dogs outside <laughs> the cabin. But, uh, yes. yes, I can see why a Ford flex would make an ideal road trip vehicle. Yeah, it's great. It, it has like a built-in fridge in the center console and the back seats are heated. It's pretty, pretty luxurious. We're very lucky in that thing. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned your dogs. Do you bring your dogs on, on your road trips with you? 
No, I've never been that daring uh, yet. <laughs> and as hard as it is for me to leave them behind, because uh, I actually work out of my house and my, you know, I'm around my dogs just about every minute of the day. They get, I take them for a trip to the dog park uh, every day, and uh, I even cite them as my co-authors for all of my books because sometimes I'm just looking for a little inspiration, and I'll look over at one of them, and you know, something seems to pop into my head, so I give them credit for the idea. <laughs> Nice. Um, but no, we usually, uh, drop the dogs off at uh, a local kennel where I know that they're going to be, uh, you know, taken good care of. And, and that kind of, uh, frees us up as a family to kind of just go have a, uh, you know, a nice family experience without having to, to worry about taking care of the dogs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're fun to have around, but it's just tough to, you know, you can't bring them into everywhere and, and everything like that. They're just, uh, they're tough to bring on the road, I guess. Yeah. And dogs are very much creatures of routine that, you know, they do not like to be knocked off their routine. And of course, when you go on a, a family trip, uh, it's anything but routine, right? Every day is an adventure. So I'm not sure that they would enjoy it that much either. Yes. Yeah. Very true. Um, okay. I wanted to, you mentioned this a, a while ago, but I want to talk about the, uh, the wood paneling on station wagons and everything oh. like that. And you mentioned this in your book, but how did that where did that even come from? Because today it just seems, you know, they're cool on the old woodies and stuff of, you know, the old, you know, Fords and everything like right. that. But a, but a station wagon with some fake wood on it just seems like so ridiculous. Like who would think of that? But now it's, yeah, you know, so go ahead. I, I love it, to hear about that. It's kind of an homage to the real roots of station wagons, which is also hinted at of course, in their name, station wagons. How did station wagons begin? They were actually wagons that were used around stations uh, at the turn of the 1800s going into the 1900s. So at that time, of course, uh, automobiles were just coming out. Uh, trains were really the uh, most common form uh, or mode of long distance transportation. Uh, people, you know, and anytime you had to cross the country or get to a distant city, uh, you did so by train. But what was still needed at that time was some sort of vehicle to get passengers and their huge travel trunks from their homes to the train station, where, of course, they'd be loaded onto the trains. And that's where, <clears throat> excuse me, that's where uh, station wagons kind of filled in. Of course, originally it was done by big horse carriages. Um, but then as vehicles started getting more popular, of course, people started realizing the utility of of uh of motorized vehicles for this purpose. So what handymen would do, there weren't any station wagons that were being mass produced by the early car companies at that time. But what handymen would do is they'd buy uh, cars, especially like Model Ts, and they would hack off the metal body, um, the, the standard metal body of the, the, the uh, Model T right behind the windshield. And then they would recreate a body entirely of wood so that it would accommodate passengers, uh, you know, in a rear seat. And then in the rear cargo area, it would be a long um, cargo space big enough to accommodate these huge travel trunks that were so common at the time. Um, so you had essentially a vehicle that was half metal, uh, and, and at least half wood. Yeah, that, <laughs> and these became, 
Yeah, they, they became incredibly popular vehicles. Obviously, uh, any kind of uh, uh, company that had to make deliveries realized the utility of them. Uh, gradually, uh, more affluent um, passengers who would take trains realized the utility uh, of having a station wagon type vehicle as their own family vehicle. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of funny, but... Um, these station wagons and their ornate woodwork became some of the most uh, expensive and prestigious models uh, of, of motor vehicles being made even into the 1930s uh, and 40s. And so um, you mentioned the Woodies, of course, you know, going into the 1950s and 60s. Of course, surfers realized the utility of station wagons uh, for accommodating their longboards, especially on the West Coast. Um, so as we got into the late 1960s and 70s, um, most station wagons were being created entirely out of steel thanks to better car production techniques that were developed during World War II. Um, but as we got into the late 1960s and 70s, people started putting, or automobile manufacturers started putting these simulated, you know, wood grain decals as kind of an homage to the original station wagons and their um, roots as, as half-wood vehicles. Man, that's cool. I love how everything sort of has a very linear like logical story of how it happened and why it's even named that today right and you know and, and unless you go back and investigate those reasons i mean you don't know why station wagons are called station wagons or why they have you know the fake wood paneling on the sides mm -hmm. totally and it's and still even today you know once in a while that that fake wood paneling resurfaces on minivan designs uh or on you know grand cherokees and what have you uh and that that all uh, you know speaks to, again to the to the roots of of station wagons yeah totally it seems to never fully go away it always tries to make a little bit of a comeback. Right. Um, and then what was I going to, Oh, this, it kind of reminds me of the, um, you know, uh, kind of how motels came into be, what you talk about in your book about how it's literally the word motel comes from squishing together the word motor and hotel. Right. Uh, you know, originally, of course, there were no motels along the early highways of America and people would simply pull their car over uh, as it got to be dark. And, you know, they came across a, a, a nice uh, scenic place to spend the night and they would simply sleep in their cars or pull a, a small tent out of the trunk of their car and set up camp uh, anywhere they cared to, basically at the side of the road. And that was a phenomenon known as auto camping. And that became very popular in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but, you know, uh, people who had property along the highways, we got pretty tired uh, after a while of, of people basically squatting on their property at night and squatting in the bushes in the morning and having to clean up, uh, you know, after, after these people had moved on. Um, but, municipalities still wanted to uh, attract the business of these travelers. And so they would set up uh, municipally owned public campsites right outside of town where people could pull their car over and spend the night. And they offered just very, very spare um, amenities, maybe a water pump or a central gazebo uh, um, where people could gather at night. Um, so they were very, very just basic accommodations. And entrepreneurs 
um, took a look at some of these uh, municipal campsites and thought, well, we can improve on that. So they started building uh, small cabins um, that at least offered a, a bed where travelers could lay their head uh, at night. And maybe there was a, a stove so that they could be kept warm, especially you know in some of the areas of the country that were a little bit cooler. Um, and so uh, these started getting to be more uh, popular with travelers. And so it was just kind of a gradual, gradual evolution uh, of catering uh, more and more to the needs and desires of, of people out on the road, travelers out on the road. And uh, yeah, motels, um, really what happened, it was two entrepreneurs that were the genesis uh, of motels. One was Charles Kemmons Wilson, um, the founder of Holiday Inn, and the other was Marion Isbell, who uh, became the founder of the Ramada Inns. And these guys it was very interesting that there were many parallels in their upbringing. They were actually both raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Both had lost their parents um, at an early age, and they kind of became self-made men. Um, Charles Kemmons Wilson was 50 years old when he had a family and wanted to set off from Memphis, Tennessee and take them all to Washington, D.C. Uh, and even though he was a, a millionaire already at this time, he uh, made a lot of money in the construction business. Um, it says a lot that instead of loading his family onto an airplane, he loaded them all up into his, I believe he had an Oldsmobile without air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> and they set off from Memphis to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, and they found that many of the accommodations that were available uh, at that time were just completely unsatisfactory for uh, anyone traveling with kids, uh, especially I think he had uh, at least four, if not five, five kids. And at some of these places, he would even be um, charged extra for each one of his additional kids. So he might be charged $4 just as a room rate and then an additional $2 per kid that was traveling with him. And this just frustrated him to no end. And so he declared upon coming back from that trip at that time that he was going to start uh, a uh, a hotel chain still known as hotels at that time that was specifically catered to the needs of families uh, that wanted to travel across America. And that became kind of the foundation uh, of, Hol of Holiday Inn. And um, so he came out with um, uh, a first location in Memphis. It was incredibly successful. Uh, it had all the trappings that we come to associate with Holiday Inn, the green and gold colors, uh, the huge marquee sign, which became known as the Great Sign, which was inspired by um, Kemmons Wilson's uh, background in the movie business. So that's why it kind of looked like a, a, a movie marquee. And, you know, it offered clean, comfortable, basic accommodations uh, with a color TV, a, a pool um, that became obviously very popular with families. And um, it became a tremendous success. And so Kevin's Wilson just started building more and more of these holiday inns along uh, along highways and um, became, uh, you know, the, one of the first of America's really great trains along with uh, Howard Johnson's. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it it's it is totally something that when you're on the road traveling where you it's extremely nice and convenient to be able to rely on a brand name chain 
um, right. type of hotel or motel where you know it's going to be, you know, up to a certain level of cleanliness and you That's know, right. nice enough. There's going to be a certain amount of amenities and stuff where you're not gambling on what you're going to get every night. That was the secret of the chains is because people knew what to expect. It was a taste uh, uh, of the familiar in unfamiliar places, right? You knew what you, ex- you knew what to expect when you stopped off at a holiday inn to spend the night. You knew what to expect when you went to a McDonald's uh, for a meal. You know, a Big Mac in Milwaukee tasted the same uh, as a Big Mac in Memphis. Um, so especially when you, when families were traveling with kids, uh, you you don't want surprises, right? You want to uh, sometimes just have that that known uh, quantity that's going to be waiting for you. You know the kind of food that you're going to get. You know um, the price that you're going to pay. And that became the, the reason for the success of many of, of not only the restaurant chains, but the, the great hotel chains of American travel. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, there was definitely that the need for that. So it's, it's it's a pretty cool story to hear how, you know, these hotels and, and McDonald's and different chain restaurants and everything kind of came up to fill that need and, and provide that similarity and everything. Uh, but in the same. So this is what I'm curious about with, with your travels and stuff now. And something that we kind of do is, would you, um, when you're out on the road, are you looking for more like a McDonald's type of meal or are you more of an explorer looking to try like the different, you know, cuisines and stuff of maybe like a local mom and pop shop or something like that? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of split the difference. I think when we are out on the road, we're more inclined to just stop off at, at one of the major chains um, just so we can kind of keep going. Um, and, you know, it's obviously something that's easy to find when you just get off the highway and, and it's there and predictable. You know what you're going to get. Uh, but once we arrive at uh, our destination, either for the night or at our final destination, that's where I get uh, a little bit, mo- bit more adventurous. Um, in particular, I'm a big bar barbecue aficionado. So whenever we're traveling, uh, you know, in, in places that are known, uh, great barbecue centers like Memphis, like, uh, you know, in Texas, of course, Kansas city, uh, even St. Louis, uh, known for its great barbecue. I'll always seek out a great, uh, barbecue joint that, uh, that, uh, the whole family and I can enjoy. And we do a lot of, uh, research, uh, in advance, uh, of visiting some of these cities to discover some of the quirky, lesser known independent type restaurants. Um, so it's really at those destinations that I get more adventurous when I'm just out on the road, then it's, you know, whatever we find along the way. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm, Pretty, pretty similar to you where I love finding, you know, finding those, you know, one-off little places that have just like incredible reviews and are, are kind of a whole experience to go visit and stuff. I love finding that stuff, but it's the same where, you know, especially towards the end of the trip, I feel like, uh, like for instance, I was in, um, this wasn't a broad trip, but I took, I went to Iceland for two weeks and at the oh, end, nice. yeah, it was a, it was a really fun trip, but, um, at the you know, we were just kind of road tripping around Iceland, uh, and, you know, trying all their different stuff. It's not like they really have a lot of, you know, chain foods there, but they do have a a bit. And man, just the last night we're like, let's just, there was a pizza hut in Reykjavik and we're like, we just got to get pizza hut. We need it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I get it. Sometimes, you know, you've had enough adventure and you just want a, a good old fashioned taste of America again. Right. So you just want to get that that classic American burger or, uh, you know, or pizza like you guys did. I, I've been there myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very, very true. Um, and something that you that's in your book that I found really interesting that I had no idea about was that how, you know, kind of the history of roads being built and everything, even before cars existed, roads were being built. Um, but the first ones were built by private companies. They weren't even really publicly funded or anything. Correct. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, all the old what are called turnpikes predominantly in the northeast and, and you know, up and down the uh, the east coast, especially. You know, America was a, a very young country and uh, it had a, a, a lot of uh, things that it wanted to build and not a whole lot of money to do it. So America's early uh, public resources went to building more things like uh, schools and and um, government buildings uh, and things of that nature. And and public roads were not a high priority. Um, so the, the very first roads were demanded mostly by farmers. They were called King's Roads. Obviously, uh, farmers were in the outlying areas of cities and they needed reliable roads uh, in order for uh, them to be able to bring their produce to, to market. Uh, and so there was some initial public funding um, through local cities to, to improve the, the first roads. But really the first uh, main travel roads to expedite commerce were these turnpikes um, that were built by private corporations. And uh, a pike was essentially a gate, a spiked gate that stopped travelers along it. And in order for that pike to be turned, uh, you had to pay a toll. Uh, and you know, you, so you, you paid a, a certain amount of money and whoever was the keeper at the pike would turn the pike, allowing you to travel on to, uh, either the destination that you were headed or to the next turnpike that would stop you, uh, along the way. And that's where we got the term, the term turnpike. Um, so I believe the first turnpike was built in 1795 by a private corporation between the cities of, uh, Philadelphia and Lancaster in Pennsylvania. And it became uh, uh, profitable, and um, and so others were were built, uh, you know, uh, to uh, similarly turn a profit like that company did. Uh, the first um, publicly funded road didn't come along until decades later, and Thomas Jefferson was kind of the the driving force behind that. Um, you know, of course, he lived out in his. Uh, estate at Monticello, and he got extremely frustrated with the condition of roads between uh, where he lived in Washington, D.C., and so he became became very much a proponent for public funding uh, of roads to, to expedite travel, uh, and so uh, it was largely through his efforts that um, the first road was, was uh, included as part of the not only provided for the founding of the state of Ohio, but a means to get there from Washington, D.C. and the East Coast. And that was a road that became known uh, as the National Road. And so that was the first really 
uh, improved, basically engineered road. And when I say engineered at that time, it means that, um, you know, they kind of uh, cleared out uh, a trench. It was a, a road that was in places 30 feet and in other places up to 60 feet wide. It was filled with crushed stone so that it was it had at least, uh, you know, a, a little foundational pavement there um, to make uh, travel better for um, especially, you know, wagons and carriages. Um, and so that, uh, that became the first publicly, publicly funded road. Um, but really America did not get serious about, about road building until the late 1800s. And the impetus behind it wasn't the evolution or it wasn't uh, the first automobiles. It was actually bicycles, mm-hmm. um, became the reason that, that the, many of the early roads were built. There was, um, uh, a tremendous bicycling craze that began in the 1880s and 1890s. And that was due to the invention of what became known as the safety bicycle. Um, prior to the invention of the safety bicycle, of course, we had the penny farthings, which were those, you know, those old timey bikes that we all think of with the huge front wheel and, uh, you know, the tiny mm-hmm. little, uh, trailing wheel, yes. um, with the, the pedals attached to that big front wheel, uh, to, you know, allow them to be, you know, move forward at a, at a fast pace. And the problem with those high wheeled bicycles were they were extremely dangerous because whenever you ran into anything, uh, with that big wheel or you hit a rut or whatever, the rider of course would be thrown off the bike. And, uh, oftentimes the, you know, the rider would break a wrist or a collarbone or something. And so bicycling, um, was pretty much just the domain of, of daring young men at that time. It was kind of a, 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 a daredevil sport. Um, what safety bicycles did is they brought the pedals, they detached the pedals from the big front wheel and brought them down and positioned them in between two smaller, equally sized wheels. And of course, um, you know, the, the pedals drove a treadle and then later on a chain. And really what this design did is it democratized bicycles um, so that they were allowed to be ridden by women and children and people of all ages. And this inspired a tremendous bicycling craze, I believe, um, in as late as 1890 or as early as 1890, that uh, one in seven Americans uh, grew to own a bicycle, which was a tremendous you know, a number at that time. Uh, and with all these people owning bicycles, they wanted to have more and better roads on which to ride them. And so that inspired what became known as the good roads movement, um, as you know, the, to promote the construction of roads that led further out to cities and allowed these cyclists, uh, to get to more places, not only within cities, but within outlying areas. Uh, and then in the 1890s, of course, uh, along come the first, uh, early automobiles, uh, and, um, and as we head into the, to the 1900s, as the cost of automobiles came down, uh, within more within the reach of the common man, especially after, uh, Henry Ford introduced the model T through his mass production techniques, then, um, automobile enthusiasts kind of took over that call for building, uh, better roads and they took over the good roads movement. And, and that, um, you know, that, that is what inspired the construction of better roads across America. America. Yeah, crazy. It's very interesting that because um, I think most people, myself included, would just assume that it was, you know, the mass adoption of cars that would 
uh, sparked the building of, of a bunch of new roads, but it wasn't, it was bikes. And then cars just kind of maybe, you know, boosted it more and, and took it into the next level. But, uh, I find that very interesting. Um, and then, so when was the first, um, the first man to kind of cross the country by car. When, when did that take place? Was that? Yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the the great stories of American road travel right there. Uh, so this is, uh, about 1903 and you know, the, the first successful attempt to cross America by car kind of began as many bad ideas do, uh, on a <laughs> bet made after a few cocktails. So, uh, the story involves a 31 year old doctor by the name of Horatio Jackson, uh, who was actually from Vermont, but he took a vacation. He was out vacationing on the West coast in San Francisco, uh, in 1903, along with his young bride, I believe he was recovering, uh, from a bout of a mild bout of tuberculosis. And so while he's out in San Francisco, he goes out drinking with a friend one night at the city's university club, and he soon finds himself in heated debate with another member there about whether these new inventions that were just coming into popularity called automobiles were a passing fad uh, or whether they were the future of transportation. And even though Jackson didn't own an automobile himself and may have never even driven one at that time, uh, he begins to argue strenuously that that cars are the future and declares that automobiles, quote, automobiles are already so rugged and reliable that he could already drive one clear across the country back to his home in Vermont. <laughs> well, not surprisingly, Jackson is called on this proclamation. Uh, and the, the two men who become, uh, you know, the, the different betters, they set a, a, a wager amount of $50. Uh, it wasn't a huge amount of money uh, to Jackson. It was, you know, it's worth about $1,500 in today's money. But Jackson was a, a wealthy physician and he married extremely well. Um, so it wasn't, uh, the bet itself wasn't a big deal, but I'm sure Jackson having to go home later that night and explain the bet he made to his wife probably was uh, a little bit of a big deal. Uh, she was a smart woman. She winds up taking a train home to Vermont. Meanwhile, Jackson hires a young mechanic by the name of Sewell Crocker uh, to join him on this, this grand expedition that he has uh, gotten himself into. Uh, Crocker recommends that Jackson buy a 20-horsepower Winton for the, for the job, uh, so he does, and the two load the car with shovels and guns and all manner uh, and they set off heading in a, a north direction uh, first so that they can avoid the most treacherous parts of the Rocky Mountains, which, you know, lie due east of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, but within just a few miles of setting off, they blow their first tire, requiring them to use their only spare. Uh, not long after that, they blow two more and they have to wind thick rope around the rims of the car just to keep making progress uh, to the next town. Um uh, Later on, they're given bad directions by a woman who sends them 100 miles out of their way just because the woman wants some of her extended families to get their first look at an automobile. So, you know, just incredible. At another point, uh, Jackson and Crocker don't hear their cooking equipment fall off over the din of the car's engine. So they lose their, their cooking equipment. They find that their 
headlights are far too dim to allow them to travel at night. So they purchase a spotlight, which they mount to the hood of the car. Uh, so it is just, you know, for a while here, it's just looking like a, a lost cause. And they're not even really off the West Coast at this point. But at some point, they pick up a stray dog, a pit bull that they name Bud as a third travel companion. And picking up Bud seems to change their luck. And they even have Bud outfitted with his own pair of glass driving goggles to protect his eyes because they found that his eyes are getting all teared up as they're crossing the arid salt flats of, of Utah. Well, um, you know, word starts getting out to the press and the press uh, began turning up at every city that the the trio uh, you know stops at along the way, and they take pictures, and these get published in the papers. Uh, and it's not long before uh, Crocker and Jackson and Bud are all national celebrities, and people start following along on their adventures and in, in the paper. Um, and by the time that uh, the trio gets uh, across uh, the Mississippi River and gets to the eastern side, the roads begin to improve. And finally, they roll into New York City and Times Square, where they are greeted as heroes by uh, throngs of the public. And all it took was 63 days, about two full months, to complete the first transcontinental crossing of America. Man, that that's such a fun story. That's great. Two months, yeah, it doesn't sound too bad, but I mean, compared to today, that's that's not very efficient, I guess. Right, but considering all that they had to cross, I mean, this is at a time when there are barely any roads constructed west of the Mississippi River, and you have to, uh, you know, consider that these guys had to cross. Uh, you know, at least a stretch of the Rocky Mountains through the Oregon Trail. Uh, they're crossing uh, vast stretches of basically desert in in, in Utah. Uh, they're having to go through very narrow trails through uh, expansive forests, and of course, cross the Great Plains. Um, you know, I think it's it's worth uh, worth it just picking up a book on Horatio Jackson's adventure uh, all by itself because it was a, a pretty amazing trip. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's fun to kind of imagine just kind of driving a, a car, you know, with with rope around wrapped around the rims as tires and stuff, but not even on a road, really. You're just driving across terrain and just heading out, you know, east. It's crazy. Yeah, and they did have, you know, basically wagon trails uh, to 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 follow. But, um, yeah, it was pretty rough riding. And, you know, especially considering, uh, you know, these weren't inflated rubber tires at this time either. So you are being constantly jostled. Of course, you're having to wear uh, goggles just to, to keep all the dust and dirt that's being kicked up uh, from getting in your eyes and onto your face. Uh, it was very much an adventure. Yeah. Do you have any idea what kind of average speed they were going? Uh, you know, that's uh, that is a good question. Um, when they were making progress, it's likely that they were getting up to speeds of 20 or 25 miles per hour. But of course, progress was was, was very sporadic because they're having to constantly stop off. Uh, there were times where uh, they would have to stop for days uh, in order to await the delivery of spare tires or other parts that they needed in order to keep going. And, and Jackson would uh, you know, spend some of this time writing letters to his wife in Vermont, uh, knowing that you know, these letters, of course, would arrive months before he would. <laughs> Oh man, that's like the opposite of today where you'll mail a letter and and you might get to your destination before That's your right. letter would even. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. Wow, man. I love that story. Um, and then I really appreciate you sharing all this info. I love this stuff. It's so fun. But I think we should talk about the the deregulation of the airline industry because I think that that was pretty important to kind of, would you say, like almost the end of the road trip era? Yeah, at least it, it, it signified the end of what I call the golden age of road trips. Um, so, uh, you know, as late as 1975, uh, four and five Americans had never been on an airplane. Isn't that incredible to think about? So they never boarded an airplane, you know, to get away for a weekend to Vegas, to, to fly uh, anywhere across the country, to go see grandma and grandpa or to, you know, go on vacation. 80% of Americans as of 1975 had never been on an airplane. And the reason for that was that air travel was so incredibly expensive. And the reason for that is because air travel uh, until that time was incredibly heavily regulated by the government. Uh, dictated the routes that they had to fly, the fares that they had to charge, uh, everything down to the seats that they and the positioning of the seats uh, on their aircraft. Everything was di dictated basically by, uh, you know, some nameless, faceless bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., and that kept um, airfares artificially high. Uh, that all ended with the Carter administration. In 1978, uh, they passed legislation deregulating the airlines. It was actually a, a, a multi-year plan where the de you know, regulation of the airlines was intended to be phased out on a yearly basis, but things happened uh, much faster than that. Um, uh, because uh, so much more competition uh, between uh, airlines uh, arose in the market, and you know it basically got to be a, a competition of trying to attract flyers by offering the lowest uh, possible airfares and, and improving service in just about every way possible from you know having stewardesses at the time wear mini skirts and, and trying to woo uh, male business passengers that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, better aircraft were, com were coming out at the time, but um, you know, it was just in the span of, of just a couple of years between 1978 and really like 1981, 82, um, that airfares plummeted. And um, so families across America, including mine, uh, got on an airplane for the first time to take their uh, family trip. And, and of course, it was, you know, an, an amazing experience. Uh, whereas, you know, before uh, being able to get on an airplane, it took you days to arrive at a destination. Now it just took a, a few hours. And, and so it was an incredibly different and enticing experience to eliminate that long, arduous journey that it once took, uh, you know, between your um, home and, and the place that you intended to travel to. Uh, between 1975 and 1985, 100 million additional air tickets were sold. So that just goes to show, you know, how popular air travel became, uh, basically just within a, a, a matter of a few years. And so people started, uh, parking their cars at the airport and boarding airplanes instead of using those cars to travel to their final destinations. And, um, you know, even though it, it always made economic sense, especially for larger families who would have to buy uh, a number of, of, of uh, air tickets. Um, you know, it always made some sense for some families to keep traveling by car, but it really, uh, it, it really dealt a, a, a fatal blow to, uh, road trips in general. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, uh, yeah, 
Very much so. But I think it's nice today how we almost have, we still have the road trip. You can still take a road trip and, you know, all these roadside attractions still exist and everything. And you could take the smaller roads and go through the, the small towns and see all that. But you also have the option to, you know, travel quickly on an airplane and just get to your destination or, you know, take a take yep. a freeway and just tra- kind of travel over everything really quick, you know. Yep. But there's a lot of evidence to show uh, now just in recent years that millennials in particular are turning back to to the road trips uh, as an option for them in, in far greater numbers. In 2015, 22% of all American vacations were taken by car. Just the following year, 2016, that figure went up to 39%. So, uh, you know, I think that's an indication that People are starting to get fed up a little bit with air travel. Of course, airfares have gone up dramatically in price in recent years. There's much more hassle associated with flying by airplane now that we have to you know, get to the airport two and even three hours in advance of our flights. There's all these unexpected delays and cancellations, which are becoming so prevalent in air travel today. And people, uh, and especially millennials, have kind of had it. So they are coming back and realizing the practical benefits of road travel. In fact, they cite the the number one reason among millennials now for traveling by car is so that they can be in control of their travel experience. Uh, You know, they determine the time that they want to leave each morning. Uh, They determine where they want to stop along the way. These are all things that you can't do when you're, um, you know, traveling uh, by by airplane. Um, So. You know, it's my hope, though, that as millennials are rediscovering the practical benefits of road travel, that we also get back to that uh, idea of the the travel experience as one to be shared uh, by an entire family. Because as we've discussed over the course of this podcast, there's so many things to be discovered along the way. And there's so many fun ways for families to, to kind of you know, get to know each other or get reacquainted during these long road trips um, that you can only do when you are going out and touring touring America by car rather than flying over the country in an airplane. Mm-hmm. Totally. Sweet. Well, that was a good way to end it, I think. That was a nice cap to, to all that. Nice conclusion. You bet. Sounds good, Travis. I think we Sweet. covered it all. And what yeah. we didn't cover, I hope uh, people will pick up a, a copy of my book and, and discover and learn for themselves. Uh, I, you know, I think um, it, it's an interesting blend of you know, kind of fun family stories. And of course, there's a ton of history in there where we learn uh, why so many of the things that we take for granted today from uh, our interstate highways to some of the devices that we have in our car to, you know, even those great stations wagons, which are, are kind of coming back into vogue themselves recently, uh, you know, we get to know where all those things uh, came from. So I hope people will consider picking up a copy of the book called Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip. And of course, uh, they can order that at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or visit their local independent bookseller. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. It was a, it was a very fun book to read. It's, it's really, uh, interesting to learn there, you know, all this different stuff about, you know, we talk about, you talk about the federal highway speed limit and all this kind of stuff that we didn't even cover in this, in this, uh, little chat here. So, uh, highly, highly recommend the book and, and I'll throw links to, you know, to the book on Amazon and everything like that in the show description for, uh, people to click on and, and check it out. 
Well, thank you so much, Travis. I appreciate it. And yes. I appreciate you including me as, as part of your show today. I hope uh, I hope everyone learned a thing or two and, and also got a laugh or two out of it. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So where do you have another uh, your next road trip plan? Do you have anything planned where you're going next? Well, my problem is, is somehow uh, I got to be appointed uh, the manager of my son's uh, baseball team. So <laughs> uh, what that means for me is I pretty much have to be available to run practices and games and tournaments all throughout uh, spring here. We're even training right now in some indoor facilities getting ready for the summer. So I'm going to have to put the road trips on hold uh, at least through summer. And then we'll see what my wife and I come up uh, with as far as uh, plans for our next trip somewhere after that. Cool. Right on. Well, maybe we'll uh, run into you on the uh, on the highways. That would be awesome. I would like that. <laughs> cool. Right on. Well, thanks again for being on, Rich. Super appreciate all your information and, and sharing everything. So thank you. You bet, Travis. Uh, take care and happy travels to you. All right. You too. Thanks, Rich. Bye. Hey, guys. Travis is here again. Um, so the podcast is over. It's done. So you can just leave right now. So don't worry about it. But I just had a couple things I wanted to mention and say to you guys. So first of all, thanks for listening to the episode or watching the episode. Super appreciate that. Um, if you want to connect with me or in, in the podcast, uh, we're on. We have a website. It's called curiosityness.com. Um, curiosityness is C U R I O S I T Y N E S S. Kind of weird. Um, but that's what it is, curiosityness.com. Uh, you can go there. We have an Instagram, instagram.com slash podcast. So not just curiosityness for the username. Uh, I'm on Instagram as TravDeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E, if you want to find just me. Um, oh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash curiosityness. We're on YouTube. Uh... I think just go to YouTube and search Curiosityness and we'll pop up. Uh, I don't think we have a URL for that one. Sorry. Oh, and we have a, I have an email address, Travis at Curiosityness.com. So if you want to email me, you know, give me your thoughts on the show, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe like a suggestion for a new, for a guest who could come on, maybe yourself or somebody that you know who might be interested or or you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know about that stuff. I, I would love to hear that. Um, oh, and then if you could leave a review too for the podcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, the reviews in like in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, wherever you're listening to this, super help. Um, just drop like a star, whatever star review. I won't tell you to do five, but it'd be nice. Uh, so drop a review. You can write a review even too if you want. That would be even better. Um, but that's about it. So thanks again for watching. I super appreciate you, you know, listening to the whole show and staying here. Um, and yeah, thanks again. Have a good day. Bye-bye.